From the Salem Center for Policy at the University of Texas at Austin, welcome to an episode of Policy in Pieces. I'm your host, Scott Bogus. If increased spending by the government is mainly to grow social programs without individual accountability, I think we will sacrifice economic well-being. Social programs as a safety net, they are the hallmark of a just society. We need them. Nobody argues that that should be eliminated. But too much of a good thing can be bad. So I worry about going too far with some of these programs. And especially at a time when room for additional deficit spending is rapidly shrinking. That was MIT professor S.P. Kotari, the chief economist of the SEC during the Trump administration. We asked him about his time there, what it was like to regulate markets during the height of the pandemic, and to explain why the market has done so well in spite of the hardships in the real economy. We also asked him to explain what economists do at the SEC and about the criticism their analyses receive, both internally by commissioners and by the public, including outside economists, some who previously served in his position. He also gives his views on fiscal spending, student debt, tax increases, the likelihood of inflation, and touches on politically fraught topics like share repurchases, short selling, and accounting for social equity and cost-benefit analyses. My co-host today is McCombs MBA student, Tyler Lyons. SP, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. You know, appreciate inviting me. Tyler, my co-host, McCombs MBA student, say hello. Howdy. So SP, first, let's uh, congratulate you on completing your tenure as chief economist of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, you came right as I left, so we missed each other, and I'm a bit sad about that. It would have been a pleasure to work with you. Uh, you are one of the most accomplished accounting researchers in academia. Can you tell us how that came to be? You have a PhD in accounting. Was that a boyhood dream, an accident, or how did you get on this path? I would say mostly an accident. You know, Like many undergrads, you know, choice of engineering was simply to follow what good students do in India, at, at least at that time, engineering or medicine. And on that fork, I chose engineering. But really, by the end of it, my heart wasn't in it. I mean, I did well academically. So I was delighted to be recruited as a management officer assigned to a sales function in a multinational firm, or, or not multinational, really, a large uh, corporation in India. And that sparked my interest in management. One thing led to another. So I ended up uh, in an MBA program at Indian Institute of Management, Ahmedabad, leading program. And that's where my interests gravitated to economics, finance, and accounting. Uh, and then there was a, also a desire to explore the West. And that brought me to the US. PhD program was the only option at that time that was financially viable. We could not get any jobs. So there I was in an accounting program at Iowa. So you might ask, how did I choose Iowa? But go ahead. Well, yeah, that, that is like a natural question. It's not just about how you chose Iowa, but how you ended up at MIT. You know, I have a PhD and one of the first things I learned is it's really hard to move up the ladder. It's easy to go down the ladder. It's even hard to go lateral. So how is it that you went from <clears throat> Iowa to Rochester and then MIT? I appreciate that. But I would say there is an element of serendipity. Iowa had the lowest application fee. So when I was thumbing through different schools, I said, gee, you know, this is a good bargain. Their application fee is so low. And the school looked pretty decent. So I applied. And as luck would have it, a visiting professor at my MBA program, MBA school, Sham Sunder, he knew me. And he assured Dan Collins, who was admissions chair at, at Iowa, that I came from a pedigree school in India and therefore was not a risky bet. Iowa turned out to be a great research school and I never was discouraged by its lack of Ivy League status. Uh, so I, I worked in the program and applied and then I was fortunate to get into uh, Rochester for the job. Well, you're, you're very humble, but let me ask this. Would you advise a future doctoral student to choose schools based on application fees? 
<laughs> Probably not, but <laughs> I hope they are not as impoverished as I was back then. You know, so. SP, you are the first uh, accounting professor to be selected as the chief economist for the SEC. Can you talk about how that happened? And also, why do you think being an accountant qualified you to be the economist at the top and most influential regulator in the entire world? You are not the first one to ask that question. And it, it, it's a natural question to ask, how does an accounting professor become a chief economist? And even though I had an accounting PhD, my training and research have been quite active in finance and, and applied economics, uh, in addition to, of course, accounting. And I was really fortunate in being at Rochester. Rochester, that time and even now, it's a small school. We interacted daily with finance and economics faculty. It was almost seamless. So success in research and my broad interest made it possible for me to be recruited at MIT. That was the big break that I received that from Rochester, I went to MIT. And soon the faculty there felt comfortable to designate me as head of the Department of Economics, Finance and Accounting. My research again came in handy uh, when BGI asked me to serve as global head of equity research. And they, they were looking for the twin abilities of both research and I was deputy dean back then. And so they, they thought that I would be good in managing a large team. Uh, I had some administrative skills. Uh, so there I had a team of 50 PhDs at a portfolio that was more than $200 billion, $300 billion when I started. So all of those elements, my research, my training, my experience in securities industry, all of that, those helped me in being considered for the job of chief economist at the SEC. You just talked about how you left MIT to serve as a global head of research at BGI before it was acquired by BlackRock. Can you just talk about why you made that decision and what you learned? And also during your time at BGI, how did that shape your view or not shape your view about how you think about financial market regulations? BGI approached me. Uh, there were Richard Sloan, who was my former student, and uh, Scott Richardson. And I had met Blake Grossman earlier in my career as well. Uh, so they approached me, and then I looked at the job. BGI at the time was world's largest asset manager. Uh, they managed back then, you know, $2 trillion. So they were huge. Uh, I was being asked to lead a team of 50 PhDs and oversee a portfolio of about $300 billion in equities. They're also world's largest active equities. This is not indexing, this is active portfolio. Uh, the investment philosophy, even though it was active investment strategy, the philosophy was not too far from my own beliefs about the market, which is that markets are quite efficient. But at that time, I thought that maybe active quantitative investment strategies might yield some juice. So it was that uh, impression that I had, I wanted to test it out. Uh, so I also thought that the BGI job presented an opportunity to put into practice what I had been researching for the previous two decades. My timing was not the best. I joined in July, 2008 and the market promptly tanked. So jokingly, I say, how do you manage hundred billion dollars? Well, you start with $200 billion and then you lose 100. That's how you end up with $100 billion portfolio. All right. So you caused the financial crisis. That's what we've learned right now. You joined BGI and the market tanked. Uh, then so, I joined the SEC and the pandemic takes place. And the pandemic takes place. So yeah, let's, let's move back to the SEC for a second. You've already alluded to the fact that you have a lot of uh, different qualifications uh, to lead organizations in different dimensions. You went to the SEC. Uh, to lead, you're not only the SEC's chief economist, but you're also director of the Division of Economic and Risk Analysis. And there, I believe you have about 160 staff. It's a large staff. It's like having an entire college of business faculty reporting to you because at least half of them had a PhD in some discipline. Can you describe like what the economists and other PhD trained uh, staff did in the division, the volume of work and the economic division at the SEC do? That's a great question, Scott. Indeed, this was my biggest job and I had not anticipated this to be 
that big. I mean, I, I, I had not given detailed thinking. I probably took about 15 minutes to say yes to, to the job offer. So with, with 160 professionals, as, as you said, and including about half of them being PhDs, what is true about the job of chief economist and, and DIRA head is the breadth of activity. It's huge. It's far greater than what I thought. And, and let me give you a flavor for what is it that we do that leads me to conclude that the breadth is enormous. So first and foremost is policy economists, and they perform economic analysis of every new regulation. Economic analysis means laying out the qualitative pros and cons of the regulation, and at least making a serious attempt at quantifying the costs and benefits of the regulation. Now, most of the time in the end, we were not able to quantify, especially the benefits. Costs are a little bit easier to quantify. Uh, but anyway, we made an attempt uh, like my predecessors as well and, and uh, worked on that. In addition, we work very closely with rulemaking divisions. On all of this policy analysis, we work closely with rulemaking divisions and in the process, the goal is to shape the regulation itself in those discussions. Policy economists, they also produce research reports, congressionally requested or otherwise, for the benefit of the commission. For example, a research report on share buybacks and a report on pro-cyclicality of credit ratings. Those are two examples of research reports that we produced in last year. The second large activity is litigation economics group, and that has about 30 folks in it, and they support the enforcement division in performing economic damages analysis. Then the third big group is focused on risk assessment, and overall the risk assessment portfolio turned out to be far bigger and in many ways more interesting to me than, than when I walked into uh, the SEC. Uh, risk assessment put into monitoring the risks in debt and equity, securities markets, money market funds, municipal bonds, and some derivatives. These are huge markets and there always is a need to monitor and assess risk. But in addition, as regulators of the gigantic non-banking financial sector, uh, running into tens of trillions of dollars, the SEC interacted with domestic and international prudential regulators and policymakers, for example, the Fed, the Treasury, IMF, Financial Stability Board based in Basel, ECB, European Central Bank, and many sovereign central banks like Bank of England. And, and that was very interesting because we used to exchange information as well as think, contemplate what kind of policy initiatives might be taken to cope with some of the risks. So that's a lot. Probably people don't appreciate how much responsibility there is in leading a division like that. You know, in all this work, when it goes out, particularly the policy work, it's the head of the group, it's the chief economist that has to concur and say, yes, I agree with this. Given all of that volume, there's not enough hours in the day to get into the details of every single thing that the division does. How do you know to pull the trigger and say, yes, I concur, yes, this is right. Yes, I agree with it. I, I stake my reputation on it. Now, how do you manage that flow of information and be able to say that? No, that, that, that's an important element. And one thing that I realized even when I was deputy dean was that you have to go by instincts a whole lot because you are making a huge number of decisions and you can get on top of the details of every uh, information that is needed to make that decision. You learn to delegate, you get work done from others. So what I did here was as soon as I went, I encouraged them to <clears throat> get in touch with me on any project at the earliest stage so that we could discuss and define the contours of the project and what are some of the more salient issues. 
So they used to give me a briefing on, okay, we are thinking about this new rule and these are the kinds of issues. And at that stage, I could ask some questions and change the direction a little bit or add certain issues or, or say that certain issues are just not important. I mean, you might think for comprehensive reasons, you want to include them, maybe so, but let us face it, they are not important. So I was trying to make some decisions early on. And thereafter, when things come, unless they have changed, I was trusting them. This was a phenomenal team and I trusted. Yes, I was to go through and in some paragraphs or some pages and some material I was to read and make some edits here and there. But as you said, <clears throat> it is impossible to read line by line the entire volume of material that comes. You trust and you, you run with it and face the music if that's what happens. And, and I, I don't think there were any serious bungling that took place. So I, I count my blessings. It's a combination of trust and having good staff supporting you. Absolutely. Absolutely. You can, to use the cliche, you're only as strong as the weakest link. You know? So I've, I've noticed in my tenure at the SEC that many division directors, when they come in, uh, they have their pet projects or they want to put their stamp on something. And, and maybe you can give us a, a flavor of what you wanted to do when you came in. But let me just say that one thing that I noticed was the division started producing macroeconomic reports. And that's something that typically wasn't done by a micro type regulator like the SEC. Can you talk a little bit about how these macro analyses came out? And in particular, uh, we saw that you produced one on you know, COVID-19 or that you were the head mm -hmm. of a COVID-19 market monitoring group. Were these macro reports a product of that? Was it something that you wanted to do anyway? And it just so happened that COVID came out or give us a little bit of context or flavor for um, those developments. So when I came in at uh, the SEC and DIRA, I had a general familiarity with the staff. So I, I thought that first is to recognize that DIRA is uh, a service organization. We, we didn't make rules ourselves, but we were helpful to other divisions in rulemaking. So I wanted to make sure that we take pride in that. We should take pride in the work that we do, improve the quality and efficiency, sound economic-based analysis. So that was one. And the second, what I thought was that SEC, we oversee non-banking financial intermediation sector. It's, as I said, more than $50 trillion. And so we, we have insight into huge securities market, but we do not have any publication that provides an assessment of these markets. And I thought that right from the, you know, pretty much within first week I said, we are to have a publication and maybe it is because of my bias as journal editor or whatever, you know, I thought that we should have a publication that gives our assessment of where the markets have been and what are some of the risks lurking behind at every quarter. And that propelled me to think in terms of uh, the economic and risk quarterly and that all of that was very helpful when COVID-19 hit the economic shock and that at that time we produced some reports. Can you talk a little bit more about the market monitoring group? How you viewed the threat of the pandemic when it first <clears> emerged? <throat> Did that view evolve? And then where you think um, market risk is at today uh, as we have seen the vaccine take hold of it? Yeah, th this was not something that I had signed up for, you know, the, dealing with COVID-19 shock. But as, as we say, in anybody's working life, I mean, there are always are surprises, markets, there are surprises. And COVID-19 was one of those entirely exogenous shock that brought the entire world economy to, it, to its knees, I mean, basically. So... 
When the COVID-19 shock impacted the US and global markets in somewhere around March, 2020, some might say that we should anticipate it looking at what was going on in December in China and other places. Uh, and we were tracking things, but didn't quite think that this is going to spread like wildfire throughout the world. So in March, 2020, when the shock finally hit the US and global markets, the SEC's focus was to monitor and take steps to avert market breakdown. So that was responsibility number one. Second was to communicate information about the markets to the Fed, Treasury, and the White House as input into their policymaking deliberations. And finally, communicate and coordinate with domestic as well as global prudential regulators so systemic risk is addressed. Uh, the SEC organized this, all these functions by setting up a task force with representation from all the divisions and many offices. And I had the privilege of chairing that task force. We met almost daily. We communicated developments amongst ourselves. So you know, different people, money market fund, well, this is what is going on or um, some of the ETFs, there are some problems or some uh, treasury markets are freezing. So whatever it is, trying to communicate and try and understand what is going on and what steps could be taken to uh, address those market breakdowns, if any, or, or the stress that the various markets were experiencing. We then briefed commissioners and answered their questions. We normally did that very infrequently, but during COVID-19, we were doing it two, three times a week. And so that was quite intense. And my role was to offer an economic commentary. You know, I'm, I'm curious because the pandemic's on unraveling and <clears throat> that is also affecting you directly in your ability to do work. So at one point you all went home and were working remotely. How do you connect and meet daily and how do you update the commissioners? And in particular, you know, sunshine rules are such that the commission can't meet regularly with each other without notice. So did you have a lot of closed meetings? How did all that communication take place? Were there any bumps to start and how efficient was that? You know, one of the pleasant surprises of the pandemic has been that how seamlessly and how efficiently we have been able to work even though we were remote. So yes, the, these were uh, because of the Sunshine Act, but you know, these were closed commission meetings and the secretary used to announce and, and all the preliminaries were being read out whenever we used to <clears throat> meet with commissioners. And so we followed all the rules on a remote basis, but I must say that the technology performed brilliantly and therefore we, we didn't have too many issues. Uh, there might have been hiccups here and there, but really that was more the exception than norm. Can you talk to us about the market response, the strong market response in spite of COVID? So especially in contrast to areas of the economy that are far from recovered, if you think about retail, travel, lodging, things like that, that are still recovering pretty quickly. What's your view on that? Why is it happening? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point. You know, in, in, as the market was recovering, one day in my economic commentary, I drew a parallel to Shakespeare's plays. I said that when initially in March, the market went down precipitously, uh, it was the tempest. And then as end of March, early April, it started to recover. We, we said, well, it was much ado about nothing. Then when it continued its upward trajectory, I said, gee, you know, this is as you like it. You know, the traders were saying and, and market participants were saying, this is as you like it. And then when it went further up, then at that time, the reaction was, well, this is midsummer night's dream. And then when it continued even beyond that, and at that time, well, we thought about the taming of the shrew. So, so there, is, there is a sense in which what, what the question that you asked 
is about, is there a disconnect between what we were observing in the stock market and what was going on in the real economy? And at first blush, it seems quite that way, right? So I also opine on this seeming disconnect between market performance and the real economy. And the paradox seems to get resolved once we recognize that poor performing sectors are largely low wage sectors. And this is not meant to pass any judgment or be pejorative about it, but those who were consumer facing, providing services, they are generally lower end retail jobs or restaurant workers uh, or, or some other players. Many of them are low wage employees. So that is one. And their incomes were replaced by the stimulus. Consumers, they replaced consumption of leisure and hospitality services, which were very badly affected. So consumption in those industries was replaced with video games and streaming services for entertainment or home remodeling, which just took off. And toward this end, I totaled up the pre-pandemic market valuation of several companies like Hertz, Marriott, Cruise Lines, ExxonMobil, because oil sector was very badly uh, hurt. More than 10, 15 companies, I totaled up their pre-pandemic valuation, and that was less than the market value of Facebook alone. It gives you some indication that the job losses and the strain experienced by several industries, that was, that's very palpable. And even today it is, but in aggregate, those sectors account for a small fraction of the sectors that were relatively unaffected or even thrived during the pandemic. So that kind of explains the apparent disconnect between what we observe, people get, losing jobs, tens of millions of people being unemployed, but still the market doing well. Well, Hespia, I've got a, I've got a question for you. It may not be a fair question, so you don't have to answer if you don't think it's fair. But you are so well-rounded; you can speak on so many things. You just said markets were rather resilient. A lot of companies just shifted uh, resources around or gained in ways that were unexpected due to uh, COVID. And you also said the stimulus replaced some of the losses. You know, we now have about seven trillion dollars of stimulus. What do you think about that level of stimulus versus what you think the real economy needed? Do you have any views? Is it the right amount, too little, too much? Well, the reality is I think we, we have gone a little bit overboard with the stimulus. I mean, the first round last year when it was given, fact is that more than 80% of people had more income during the pandemic than before the pandemic. So it's quite remarkable how generous we were. But given that it was a pandemic situation and urgency, and we were dealing with emotional issues. So, you know, we did that. But to repeat with an even bigger check, seems to me that you know, there, are, there are some questions. So what matters in all of these things is how much you spend and how you spend. Both of those things matter, right? And how much you spend is determined by taxes and deficits. And an increase in taxes means more is spent by the government versus the private sector. So unless the government spending is equally productive, more taxes will adversely affect the economy. That is just simple math. I mean, you know, it's not any complicated thing that if you have $100 and earlier it was $25 through taxes, the government was spending and 75 was spent in the private sector. And now you change that balance to 30, 70 or 35, 65, more is being spent by the government and less by the private sector. So the, unless the government is equally productive, you are going to have some effect of that. So that happens. Now, if increased spending by the government is mainly to grow social programs without individual accountability, I think we will sacrifice economic well-being. So this is a version of trade-off between lives and livelihood. 
social programs as a safety net, they are the hallmark of a just society. We need that. Nobody argues that that should be eliminated. But too much of a good thing can be bad. So I worry about going too far with some of these programs. And especially at a time when room for additional deficit spending is rapidly shrinking. There aren't too many choices because already now debt is 100% of GDP and it will go to 110% of GDP soon. And if at this rate, it seems that we are running out of the runway for additional deficit spending. And your work at DARA focused on market risk. So can you talk about the stimulus going a bit overboard or not even a bit, but much too overboard? Can you talk about how this will exacerbate market risk? Well, market risk, it's one thing about the economy and the other thing is about the stock market, right? And as, as we have seen, the firms are being very profitable. If you look at some of the P multiples and those, those things, they, especially given the low interest rates, they're not out of whack. So a lot will depend upon whether or not because of the habit that we have gotten into, into spending beyond our means, if at some point interest rates turn up or inflation picks up, in which case we would have a rude awakening. The market, to the extent that it will get surprised by an uptick in inflation, asset values will come down crashing. So, so that's the risk that we face. How we manage it, time will tell. It's also, it depends upon the bet that we are making. We, as I said, how much we spend and how we spend. So if, if the extra amount that we are spending, it truly enhances productivity, enhances people's income, then we have reason to hope that only good things will happen and we will be on this trajectory. If on the other hand, if it is anything like the student debt experience, there, the argument in when 10 years ago, 12 years ago, and I, I said this on Market Watch on you know, video recording, I said that at that time, the argument was additional lenient student debt programs, they would enhance human capital. If they did enhance human capital as expected, then we wouldn't be writing off $1.6 trillion of student debt. The reality is there was no market discipline in making those lending decisions. And people took advantage of the free money that was available, meaning thereby borrowing without too much market discipline. And now we are at a stage where we have $1.6 trillion of student debt, and we are looking to write off much of it, if not all of it. So the same thing applies to the current spending programs. If they are spending programs that do not generate value. And if you do not have accountability or market discipline, then they are less likely to generate value. And then we would be suffering from having spent huge sums of money without much to show for by way of productivity or income increase. And, and that would be a sad state to be in. So you, you gave your views on student debt a decade ago and were right. Can you give your views today on inflation. This is what everybody's trying to determine. Uh, many thought that uh, the global financial crisis, that stimulus would lead to inflation and it didn't. And that seems to have emboldened this particular stimulus in response to COVID. Do you have a view on whether all this is going to lead to inflation? Or is it going to be returned to the 70s or not? I worry about it, you know. So for, first, when we are teaching, we always say that the valuation is based on discounted present value of expected future cash flows and so on and so forth, right? And that creates an impression that market is almost on a daily basis making that assessment and valuing. And I don't have any proof, but my suspicion is what market does is it periodically goes through that exercise. Don't ask me how and exactly how that happens, but it, it kind of meanders along, goes along, and then all of a sudden it says, okay, we got to make some assessment. Either some event triggers that or whatever triggers it, but 
but that happens. So my fear is that we are going to see those kinds of moments in the next one, two, three years, because we are on a trajectory that doesn't seem sustainable. And it's, it's silly to think that we can increase taxes and collect a whole lot more revenue. That rarely works out. And so on the other hand, we are committing to certain spending decisions that are very sticky in nature. So we have to make those spending and, and there is limited elbow room for debt. Uh, so given all of that, my thinking is that sooner or later, we are going to face the reckoning and that would be higher inflation. And that's sooner meaning two, three years, later meaning five years. You want to put a number to it? Are we going to hit 5%, 10%? Like what's the probability of hitting 10%? The, the reason it is difficult, all of these things is because policymakers act on it as well. So a lot of de- lot depends upon. I, I, think, I think there is enormous understanding. So there would be action taken to counter the force rather than letting it bloom and we becoming some the usual name that gets used is banana republic type of situation. Let's let's move to something that uh, I have a keen interest in, and I'm sure you learned a whole lot about in your time at the SEC, Nandira, cost-benefit analysis. And one thing you probably don't appreciate is that, you know, when you're on the inside, a lot of criticism comes from the outside. Everybody has a vested interest in what rules get adopted and the justification and rationalizations for doing so. And there's one in particular that was controversial, and it was a derivatives reform, use of derivatives by funds. And in particular, a couple of former chief economists wrote in, wrote comment letters, and commented on the economic analysis and gave views on how it should have been done compared to how it was done. And so these are your colleagues, people that you know, former chief economists writing to you saying, here's what I would have done. How did that feel? And how did you respond? So I, I tend to have a thick skin, you know, so I don't let, I, I try to not have too much of an emotional response to any of these kinds of criticism. And I ask myself, well, is there a particular reason we are shirking from doing the kind of economic analysis that they are saying? And you know, nobody has ever accused me of shirking on work. I mean, I, I, I tend to work hard. So that was not an issue. Was there something that we were trying to hide? That, you know, was there an economic re- rule or regulation that our heart was in it, we wanted to pass it, but costs were high and we were trying to hide it? Was I facing that kind of a situation? The answer is no. I always said, we ought to look at the ease with which business can be done simultaneously protecting investor interests. We can't have one or the other. We need to have both investors being protected. At the same time, businesses should thrive. So when I was looking at rules and trying to decide whether you know, our analysis, does it support or not, you know, my eyes were on, on that. But we're not trying to hide. If the costs were high, we would have said that. So, and, and if effort was lacking, we would have put in more time and energy into it or more insights into it or have contacted others to guide us into doing that analysis in a better fashion. I did not think that. So I took the criticism as well-intentioned and they have a different viewpoint and they are offering some suggestions. I took those into account and moved forward. So let me ask you this, uh, criticism from the inside, you're now out, so you're in a safe space. You can, you can tell what it was like, but obviously when you write an assessment of a rule and somebody's invested interest in what that rule does on the inside, a commissioner or the chairman or another division, uh, what was it like? Did you get a lot of pushback on the rules? Did you have to, you know, stand up and say, no, 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 there's a trade-off here. There's no free lunch. What was that like? So there are three different constituencies, I would say. One is the chair's office, the other is my own staff, and third is other commissioners other than the chair. Those are the three constituencies that I mean, of course, outside investors and commenters and 
and outside academics or past chief economists or others, they also, but, but I didn't deal with them nearly as often. So these the first three that I mentioned constituencies, those were the most often that I dealt with. And of those only commissioners, there were some challenging moments. And, and there, there's a, because for, for exactly the reason that you are saying, which is that ideology, passion, those things do motivate people into making certain arguments. And I was, I always tried to be as respectful as possible. I know that commissioners have the right to ask questions. So I, I didn't get offended because they were asking questions that, that is their right. And it is my job to try and respond as much as possible. So I was trying to give them a dispassionate analysis uh, and, and not always we saw eye to eye or we didn't agree on everything, but I thought the conversation was almost every time it was professional, it was polite and it was respectful. Uh, so, so we didn't have, uh, but was there disagreement? Yes, absolutely. And then were there a couple of heated moments? Yes, in two years, I, I think only a couple of them, they were somewhat heated, but that's the way the cookie crumbles. Do you want to give an example of a heated moment? Is that something you can share? Maybe the context or color? Well, yeah, I mean, I don't think it will serve much useful purpose. It was in the context of rulemaking. The contentions were proxy voting and shareholder rights, you know, those in that context. And there were, there were some argument that we had. And, you know, it's interesting. The U.S. rule is you should have at least $2,000 of share ownership for one year in order to be able to make a proposal. The median in the world is 5% ownership. So we are so generous compared to the rest of the world, right? And when there was some discussion about raising that, in the end it wasn't raised, but raising that from 2,000 to 10,000 or some such amount, there were a lot of emotions that were making rounds, if you will. And I, I thought that it missed the economic point. I think our goal is that it should not be unreasonably difficult for someone to make a proposal. And are there many shareholders with $10,000 ownership in billion, multi-billion dollar companies? And the answer is unambiguously yes. Does it cost 10,000? No, it's an investment, your share ownership so your cost is only, you're getting a normal rate of return also on that. So the only cost would be that you might have foregone some diversification benefit. So, so in that sense, when economic arguments were being presented, I, I firmly thought that 2000 is at a very low end and making it 10,000 is not going to be unreasonably burdensome, but the, passion with which that was being opposed surprised me. I'd like to shift the conversation a bit to something else that incites uh, passion in people, and that's social equity and ESG. So you left the SEC before the January 20th Biden memo that ordered federal agencies to promote social welfare, racial justice, environmental stewardship, human dignity, equity, and the interests of future generations. And that's all supposed to be part of the regulatory review process. So conservatives believe this is the beginning of the end and any policy can be justified even if the costs outweigh the benefits, while progressives think it's a good first step, but maybe doesn't go far enough to help cut through the red tape. What does the former chief economist believe about this? If you were still there, how would this memo affect your decision-making and how you were supervising and analyzing rules? This is perhaps the most important question and, and also the issue. And there's no denying that these are important issues. In my opinion, they are political issues and issues that societies and nations decide through their elected representatives. Assuming we are talking about democratic societies and that which US of course we are, but in general also. Commercial organizations, in my opinion, should not be burdened with shaping these policies. But like any other law, they should follow the prevailing laws and ethical custom. Uh, I'm paraphrasing uh, Milton Friedman on that, but, but reality is that that's what 
commercial organizations should be required to do. The laws undoubtedly, undoubtedly will affect the fortunes of corporations. There's no question that if you formulate a new law that would either benefit or affect or adversely affect corporation. And individuals from various commercial organizations like anyone else can choose to participate in the political debate, elections, and influence those laws. That is the rules of the game for commercial organizations to follow. But the commercial organizations themselves should not be forced to take sides in this and be required to do that. So, so in some ways, in my opinion, the politicians or social activists, they are trying to pressure commercial organizations to do their dirty job. I call them dirty, not because I believe or disbelieve these policies, but more as a, as a figurative expression that it is their job to do it. And instead they are trying to ask these commercial organizations to do it. The reason for this is it is difficult for a commercial organization to stand up and take sides. Look at what's happening right now, H&M, China has said, has locked them out. Now, obviously, depending upon who wins in this game of stare, H&M versus China, in the meanwhile, H&M might suffer. Now, fortunately, it has only 6% of the revenue coming from, the, from China. So it may not suffer nearly as much, but clearly some of the employees over there that who are employed by H&M and they would suffer. So there, there can be a lot of it. Now, reality is that I think nations should have its political question, whatever their views are on whether it is some forced labor or not, the Uyghurs are being treated in Xinjiang. It is for the nations to make a decision and then H&M can operate within those regulations. Let me give you another example and it would, it's brief. How did child labor disappear? Well, mostly through laws. It wasn't that individual companies said we are not going to do child labor or not. It was legal and Foreign Corrupt Practices Act acts of saying that while pressuring, not only on the US soil, you cannot have child labor, but you cannot also have child labor when you're sourcing your supplies from foreign jurisdictions. It was that legal aspect that was particularly effective. And the same logic applies. Of course, I'm in favor of, I'm, I'm in favor of child labor laws, and I'm in favor of, you know, or, or against forced labor. But that said, I don't think we should burden commercial organizations to fulfill this social agenda. I think it is the job of elected representatives and societies to decide what kind of world we want to live in. And they can enact those laws and they can force then these commercial organizations to follow those laws. So there's, there's no guidelines set yet. It's not clear, even when they do set guidelines as part of the regulatory review process, whether it will apply to an independent agency like the SEC. But you've already pointed out in your introductory comments that measuring benefits are extremely hard and you had a hard time quantifying them even before this memo was published. And so I'm wondering in the promotion of outcomes outside of securities markets. Can you envision what it would be like to write a rule in which you were asked to describe the impact on affected parties that you hadn't in the past? I mean, is this something that you, you can do? No, barring only in some isolated cases, I think the cost benefit analysis will go with the party that is pushing the agenda. So that, that, that's the way. And then I don't want to blame one party or other. I think all of, both the parties do the same thing. So, so that I, I'm not trying to uh, be partisan about it. That's how the world works. And then in, in fairness, I mean, I will also say that elected representatives, we in a society have chosen to 
delegate the decision making to those elected representatives. So if they enact the laws, so we as people, if we are not happy with that, when, then we are to elect a different set of people and who would enact different set of laws. So ultimately it is, that's what the essence of democracy is that it's the people that decide what is it that they want. I mean, there are some frictions in this and the process is not as seamless. We don't own people every day and every, but nonetheless, the general essence is that. Now, what is unusual is that in previous time, as well as this time, it is the razor thin margin. And yet the choices that are being made are starkly different. Well, this is this is interesting. I mean, you're giving your views and you seem to be landing on a particular side. And a chief economist is meant to be nonpartisan. It also seems that uh, you're not blaming one side or the other for particular views and you shoot down the middle. But it, it makes me wonder, do you have partisan views that influenced whether you would join the last administration and if asked to join this administration, would you have the same answer? You'd be willing to serve your country and be a chief economist or does it matter what the leanings are of administration in terms of serving? So, so that's, a, that's a great point and I, I would be very candid about it. Now, clearly my political leaning were hugely a factor in my decision to express an interest in joining the administration. So, so Republican administration in general. So that definitely, but once I was there, I was not trying to wear it on my sleeves and behave in that fashion. So I idea was to, to be fair and to examine to the extent possible based on economic thinking and based on furthering the objectives of the ACC, which are given as given to us it was not my job to shape those objectives. Those are given to us and, and doing that. So, so clearly, and it wasn't but a factor when, when I was interviewed. I didn't know Jay Clayton from Adam before I walked into his office. So that was the first time that I had met him. And, and we, we hit it off and, and we, we talked about different issues, debt markets, equity markets, and role of regulation, and so on and so forth. But it was... Uh, like that blink theory, uh, it, it was within first five minutes, it was pretty clear that we, we are aligned in our thinking, in our commitment to economic principles to guide our thinking. And then, so, so that worked out well, but, but reality is that if it is this administration, I would not express uh, an enthusiastic interest in, in working for it, but just, and just as conversely, they won't be enthusiastic about it. And, and, and I don't blame them for that, I mean, you know, because the role of, in all this senior leadership team is to be an efficient, to be a, a well-functioning team. And if you are over there butting heads constantly because you have ideological differences, uh, that's, that's not going to be, result in a productive outcome. That's a nuance that I think is hard for many people to understand. From a leadership point of view, having similar ideologies helps in pushing forward an agenda, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're, you have to be partisan in how you evaluate things. People view trade-offs differently. And being a chief economist, I'm assuming your role was to help people make those decisions, notwithstanding how they're going to weigh certain factors and they may weigh them differently from one another. Yeah, no, absolutely. So SP, you've been generous with your time. If it's okay with you, we have a couple of speed round questions. Can we ask you a couple of speed round questions to finish off our interview with you? Certainly. All right. So it would be remiss if we didn't ask you about GameStop. You wrote an op-ed about this. In fact, it was what made me think to reach out to you to have you join an interview. What are your views now on GameStop and in particular things like payment for order flow, market manipulation, short selling, gamification, capital and margin. Are there regulatory issues to consider here or was just just a market episode and the market uh, solved the problem? Again, GameStop, you know, certainly it's a 
game stopper, if you will, you know, it, it, it has stumped many of us. Couple things are easy to rule out, and those are order flow payments. I think that is, it might be a relevant issue in other contexts, but not in the context of GameStop. That's not what is driving or maintaining the price at $200. In my initial op-ed, as well as my continued belief, is that short sellers face frictions. There is risk that is in short selling that is inherent and, and clearly we cannot undo that risk. But there are frictions which make that risk even worse. And perhaps we could uh, reduce some of those frictions and help price gravitate to economic fundamental values. But who is to say, what is that economic fundamental value? I have my belief that it is far lower than the 12, 13, 14 billion dollars that we are seeing for the last couple of months, uh, or even 18 billion dollars. So the whole short selling frictions to short selling were brought in because there was concern about bear rates and how a group of traders might artificially push the price down. Now we are seeing the exact opposite. It is the bull rate that is running rough short because there is coordinated buying, perhaps because of Reddit, that, that the dissemination in social media exhorting GameStop and also a desire perhaps to exact revenge on some of the short sellers, whatever the motivation might be, but there seem to be a coordinated buying. And that bull rate, you can only counter the bull rate by having more short selling and therefore greater commitment of capital to short selling is needed to bring the price back to equilibrium, assuming that thinking is right. And, and, and so my, my conclusion even today is that it's not order flow payments, it is, it is mostly coordinated buying versus frictions encountered in short selling. Another speed round question for you. Um, this is an issue that receives a lot of political attention, the share repurchases. So did you weigh in on this issue in your previous position? And what is your view on it? Yeah, we, we had a congressional report also, and I myself also performed some analysis. Share repurchases, fact is, they are about six, seven, eight hundred billion dollars per year. And that is about that much amount of dividends also. Share repurchases are by firms that are hugely profitable. For example, Apple, and, you know, they, they might do 30, 40, 50 billion dollars of share repurchase. If you look at most of share repurchase is what we call Miller Modigliani type of scenario, which is that a dollar in the pocket of the firm versus dollar in the pocket of an individual, it would still be worth $1, regardless of where it is. So $600 billion, if it stays with the firm, firms would be worth $600 billion more. If it goes in the pockets of shareholders, it would be $600 billion less in the firm and more with shareholders. That is 99% of the time, that's what is going on. Share repurchases are announced, pre-announced, those who tender their shares, they are not forced to share, uh, submit their shares for repurchase. They have a choice, they are not coerced into that. Evidence, scientific as well as if you do the large sample analysis, there isn't any evidence. Occasionally when there is someone starts share repurchase for the first time, okay, that's what starts would mean, there is some positive stock price reaction and generally it is permanent. It's the signaling kind of hypothesis. But when firms are pre-announcing and saying that they are doing it year after year, and as I said, six, seven, eight hundred billion dollars are being repurchased annually for last several years, it's not signaling or anything. It is just merely returning capital to the owners of the firms. We looked at pay, executive pay. Is there a boost to pay to the executives for repurchasing? And the answer is hardly any. It is less than 1% uh, 
and that too is not statistically significant. So is there an EPS effect, earnings per share effect? Well, share repurchases are two to 4% of the firm's shares. So they can add one, two, 3% to the EPS boost. And that too, it is questionable because now the firm would have that much cash less. So future earnings are certainly going to be reduced. And, and as far as whether investors are fooled by that increase in EPS or directors are fooled by that increase in EPS in their compensation decision, we will have to be thinking that investors and, and directors are incredibly naive. Because this happens year in, year out. This is discussed in textbooks. This is discussed in analyst reports. So it is hard to imagine that institutional investors and others, they are systematically fooled or directors are fooled by this slight increase in EPS. It's already in the target set for companies. So overall, I think it is much ado about nothing. It is, it is sort of vilifying. It sounds good that to, to beat on CEOs or corporations and saying that it is crowding out investment. Reality is it's not crowding out investment. Again, the analysis shows it's not crowding out investment either. So we've been telling MBA students for 50 years that when they become the CFO or the CEO and they don't have positive MPV projects, they should repatriate that capital back to shareholders. And that seems to be the conclusion that you've arrived at, political pressure notwithstanding. Yes, absolutely. And it's, it's, the evidence is overwhelming in my opinion. Okay, we're gonna end on an accounting question and it has to do with quarterly reporting. And it was before you joined that President Trump tweeted, pondered that perhaps we should get away from quarterly reporting and go just annual reporting. And the SEC actually issued a request for comment asking about that question. Did this ever gain traction inside the SEC? Was there any view about, about whether that's good or bad or move forward? And do you have any view? There was some discussion from time to time, but the reality is that it's not going to make any difference because let us think about the world that we get rid of quarterly earnings reports, right? And move to only annual. Is it going to stop all analysts from asking any questions to managers, right? I mean, you know, if you, you may not have a formal quarterly earnings report, but nonetheless, people will dig up information about how the company is doing. They are not going to say, okay, we are going to lay off all our analysts for nine months of the year and employ them only three months of the year when the annual report is. No, there would be private incentives for Tyler to go and dig up information and say that, hey, you know, this firm is doing better and let us buy that stock or this firm is not doing well, so let us sell that stock. That is not going to change regardless of whether quarterly reports are given or not. There are so many firms that report every 10 days what the retail sales are, right? So it's not quarterly. Are we going to ban that? So this is in a world where there is some value to that information. There are enormous private incentives for traders, investors to dig up for that information, regardless of whether it is stipulated by regulation or not. SP, thank you for that answer. And thank you for all of your answers. It's a pleasure to have you here today. We hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you did, please consider rating it so that others can find it. Before I sign off, I want to point out something that I found notable in my discussion with SP, and that is the nuance he used to explain how to faithfully serve the public while also supporting the regulatory objectives of an administration. It's reported that Harry Truman once joked, give me a one-handed economist because their explanations tend to start with, on the one hand, and end with, but on the other hand. Economists rarely give easy answers to policymakers. Instead, when they give advice, it's usually in terms of a trade-off a trade-off that needs to be made if a particular policy is pursued. If an economist is doing their job right at the SEC, they're informing commissioners what those trade-offs are. And each commissioner may privilege the costs and benefits of those trade-offs differently and arrive at entirely different conclusions based on the same set of information. As SP described, from an operational point of view, 
it is likely more efficient if the chief economist and the chair of the SEC weigh those trade-offs similarly. But that doesn't mean that a chief economist can't be an honest broker with dissenting commissioners on how to weigh those trade-offs. And speaking of chief economists, a new one was just named, Jessica Wachter from the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. She's an accomplished academic in the area of asset pricing and knows how to measure risk, price derivatives, account for rare events and decision-making, and has written on a number of security market issues squarely within the SEC's domain. These are the types of qualifications that investors should hope for when an SEC chair, like Gary Gensler, uses when selecting a chief economist. This is a production of the Salem Center for Policy housed in the Combs School of Business at the University of Texas at Austin. The series is part of the Texas Podcast Network. The opinions expressed represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not the University of Texas at Austin. The student producers of this episode are Zoe Tarr and Abby Sawyer of the Moody School of Communication. (laughs) 